Hello and welcome to Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. I'm Jeffrey Wright, class of 1987. And I'm Biddy Martin, president of the college. 2021 marks two centuries of educational opportunity and excellence at Amherst. And to celebrate this form of education, we invited a group of alumni with graduation dates spanning more than 70 years to share their stories. Over the course of this series, you will hear their stories of growth, change, challenge, and success. Each episode of this bicentennial podcast is going to examine how their Amherst College experience helped shape their lives and their careers. To kick off the series, President Biddy Martin sat down with two of her predecessors, Tony Marks and Tom Garrity, to discuss their experience at the college. Cullen Murphy, class of 1974 and former chair of the Board of Trustees, moderated our conversation. Cullen is the current editor-at-large at The Atlantic. So let's uh, let's start off saying your name when you were the president of Amherst and what you've done since then. And Biddy, you can make up the last part. Tom, why don't, why don't you start? I'm Tom Garrity, and I left Amherst in 2003. Uh, I became the head of the Brandon Center for Justice and, and did that for a couple of years. And then as I approached 60, I sort of examined my druthers and decided I wanted to get back to teaching. And I just retired from that coincidentally, right as COVID approached our shores. We now live uh, upstate in Columbia County, right across from the Berkshires. Thanks, Tom. Tony? Uh, So I'm Tony Marks. I followed Tom as president in 2003 um, until 2011 when uh, Biddy became president. Uh, And during the 10 years since, I've been the president here at the New York Public Library which has been amazing, but only because of everything I learned from being at Amherst. Thanks, Tony. And Biddy? I'm Biddy Martin. I became president of Amherst College in 2011. It's a privilege and, of course, a treat to have three Amherst College presidents together in conversation uh, on the occasion of the college's bicentennial. And at a moment like this, it's natural to look at the question of purpose. Uh, Amherst, Amherst didn't start out as a liberal arts college, but it's been one for a long time. And, uh, and it's been in the vanguard of such schools for a long time. So I wonder, how do you define liberal arts these days? And, and what do you say to those who may argue that a liberal arts education is either obsolete or you know, some form of elitist privilege? Biddy, do you, do you want to start that as as the as the the current president of the college? You know, there are various ways of explaining what liberal arts education does. It's the form of education best suited for rapidly changing times. And why is that? It's not only because it provides graduates with breadth of education, depth in particular areas, and the ability to make connections across their specialization and other fields. Also, its real purpose, I think, is to help students develop the intellectual skills that are required for virtually any kind of work that they end up doing. 
But my favorite definition of it, and the real reason why I think it can't be considered obsolete, is the definition William Cronin gives, hearkening back to the Enlightenment roots of of the liberal arts or the definition of liberal education. I don't have the exact quote, but he says liberal arts education is education for human freedom, freedom from superstition and ignorance in the service of community. That's more lyrical, a definition of its value. And I think apt for the times we're in. Mm -hmm. And Tony, over to you. I think the liberal arts, to borrow an unfortunately overused phrase these days, is more important than ever. We need to teach the best students we can find and collect to learn how to learn and to want to keep learning. That's the whole thing, right? Yes, the breadth, the depth, the substance, but it's sort of getting your mind to work. And that means not just sort of how you do it, but the values you bring to it. So the three of you came to Amherst from very different environments, very different backgrounds coming to this singular place. And I wondered what was it that most surprised each of you when you first came to Amherst? Maybe Tony, begin with you. What what surprised me most when I got to Amherst, uh, I suppose the, the first thing that jumps to mind is learning that as president, it seemed to me I was the only person on campus who was not allowed to sled on Memorial Hill because of the legal restrictions. Having sledded on Memorial Hill for my lifetime since my cousins grew up in Amherst, that was a bit of a rude shock. But uh, more importantly, and having promised my kids amazing sledding across the street from their new house, the, um, I think more importantly for me, it was learning the history of the college. You know, if you ever wonder about whether history is powerful and can be used and shaped, I would say, you know, discovering that history of Amherst and understanding how it informs and makes real the commitment of the institution today, I think that was the great surprise and delight, I confess. And just to pause there for a second, Tony, specifically what about the history? That the place was founded to train the indigent. Um, And, you know, obviously we're more than that and we're not just men and we're not just for, you know, sort of for for teaching folks to be uh, in the ministry. But that notion of sort of opportunity and openness to the greatest talent, regardless of everything else, um, you know, when that's baked into the, the founding sort of stones of a place, it's still there and it resonates and it can be built on. Tom? I think the, the most surprising detail was the long and deep history of Black graduates from Amherst, which I was unaware of, to be frank, when I got there. And I think all three of us have tried to remember that. But that that really did catch me by surprise. But I think that the civil rights involvements and and the just pride of it was a terrific uh, and wonderful revelation to me. And I was unaware of it. Knowing that, how did that change the way you approached the job? It seemed to me that that was the legacy we had to in struggle to hold on to and to build on. Tony built on it and Biddy's built on it. And I think Amherst is really, as far as I can see, has reclaimed a very 
strong leadership in the question of facing what America is and making Amherst more like America in one sense, but but more leaderly in where America should go. Biddy, what what surprised you? I must say it was really how quickly at home I felt at Amherst. Why? Um, first of all, I came, I think, essentially for two reasons. One, because of the academic reputation of the place and its reputation for intellectual seriousness. And the other reason I came is because what I learned about what had been done by prior presidents and prior boards and faculty, staff, and students, and that is the genuine diversification of the student body and the opening up of opportunity. This is a lifelong uh, commitment on my part or belief in the need to create opportunity for talented young people. And I'm the beneficiary of having been given opportunities that no one could have predicted I would end up having, including becoming the president of Amherst. Many colleges and universities at the time claimed to be diverse. But my first months on the Amherst campus convinced me that Amherst was one of the few that could genuinely claim that the campus was racially, socioeconomically, one of the only elite peer schools. It was extraordinary to see. But then we have to figure out uh, how every student at the college benefits from that diversity and also how every student can be helped to thrive. Finally, the beauty of the campus, having grown up in the foothills of the Appalachians, of the Blue Ridge Mountains, I, I don't know that I would have chosen to live somewhere that was not enlivening and soothing also. But perhaps I was a little bit surprised at how at home I felt and how much walking with my dog to the top of Memorial Hill, how much joy that brought me uh, on a regular basis and has for 10 plus years. Could I second something that Biddy just said? Please do. My first uh, official visit to campus, I mean, my first, excuse me, unofficial visit to campus when I knew I was going to be president, I, we came up in a Ford van that we'd had. We have four boys and we had a big family and I didn't want to be seen. And I grabbed a pair of sunglasses with sunbursts on their reflective fronts. And I went out and looked down Memorial Hill, Tony, in a snowy spring day. And somebody had left a, a dining room tray. And I got one or two of my boys to slide down. So I second that. And Biddy, I really second the, the nature. And I, as you know, I'm a great kayaker and canoeer. And I used to find little inlets and stuff all through Amherst and cross-country ski there and rollerblade on Memorial Hill, which I was, I would try to do that very early in the morning. So no one would be, see me in my shorts. But uh, yeah, it's a great campus, a beautiful campus. You may be the only president Amherst has ever had that rollerblades. I'm doing less of it now. <laughs> so, Biddy, the, the first visit that you paid to Amherst, what did you do? Can you just describe what that experience was like? The first visit I made um, was, was secret. Gabby and I uh, drove from Boston out to Amherst and we walked around the campus. And for some reason, and this is before I knew a lot about the history of the place, but for some reason I saw there was a chapel that seemed quite centrally located and I decided I wanted to, to go into it and find the chapel itself. And it was a hot, extremely hot, humid summer day. And 
Johnson Chapel was not air conditioned. We opened the door. It was unbearably hot and humid in there. It probably hadn't been open. And I think one of my most vivid memories is all the portraits of the men in the chapel and realizing if I were to get seriously interested in this, maybe I wouldn't have a portrait. I was just uh, somewhat taken aback by the nature of the chapel. Those were my first impressions. The, the beauty of the campus and a little bit of anxiety on seeing the chapel. Well, it looks, it looks a lot better now. So let's spend a, a little bit of time talking about the nature of the role of president. It's, it's a very tough job, as I certainly don't need to tell you. And it comes with a lot of constraints. You know, there, there, are, some, there are some leadership jobs where you can divide and rule. And this isn't one of them. This is a job where you have to unite and, and coalesce and, and, and bring people along. It's not easy to show people that you're doing that. It's not visible in a way that other kinds of leadership actually are. It just makes me wonder, what are the things that you think the, the public doesn't understand about being a college president and what the job involves? Tom, maybe you could start with that question. I think what people within the community, the alumni, sometimes the staff, the faculty, the students, and the community you live in, larger and smaller, sometimes don't understand just how much of a kind of United Nations diplomat you are. That's to say somebody without tremendous powers to turn groups of people around, but yet try to persuade them to come together in a common course. Uh, it's not about popularity, obviously, and yet you've got to bring people along. A couple of my board members will, would say to me occasionally at Amherst, you're trying to lead a parade, but nobody's following you. I, I think that's a really tough job. And they're vocal sometimes angry constituencies and, and it's and articulate and tough. So it, it's not easy. Right. Uh, Tony? Well, I, the college presidency is not a command and control situation, nor should it be. How the institution governs itself has to be consistent with the lessons it's trying to teach its students. I think, you know, Tom said it elo eloquently, it's about listening. Uh, it's about trying to bring people together. Yes, you know, folks don't realize that college presidents are, you know, feel outnumbered by definition, right? I mean, lots of issues coming at you, lots of constituencies, they're all coming at the president because that's the sort of node, if you will. And everyone assumes that their argument, their interests should prevail because they are the correct ones, uh, the righteous ones. But of course, they don't all fit together. So the part of the puzzle is fitting them together figuring out how to get people moving. And, you know, that's not an easy job. Luckily, having a predecessor and a successor who've been masters at it makes it an easier job. Biddy? What makes the presidency a complex and sometimes difficult job has been described beautifully by Tom and Tony. It's having a range of constituencies who avidly support the idea of shared governance. <laughs> and their own role in that governance. And we want students to understand the complexity of decision-making and also to learn to love problem-solving with other people. I think the pleasure of the presidency, for me in part, is problem-solving. For some reason, 
I really enjoy a difficult problem with a lot of different variables at play, listening to people with very different perspectives on whatever it might be, and then having to think things through on their merits. And then in the end, having to make a decision based on principle, mission, and values. And it's it usually doesn't satisfy anyone completely. And I think that the Amherst community is a community, in my experience, that will tend to recognize the reasons for a decision that they don't like if it's explained uh, carefully and honestly. A lot of it is about trust that you're doing your best to make good decisions with uh, highly overdetermined circumstances. So, Biddy, you you were talking just now about about problem solving, and and anyone in your office gets ample opportunity to to practice that. And I wonder now that you're you know looking back on more than a decade of service at the college as as president, what emerges in, in your own mind as your most significant accomplishment or your handful of most significant accomplishments? And you know, don't be shy, just be candid. I can't think of anything I've done that hasn't involved the work of a lot of other people. For example, I think one of the things that I like most about what has occurred over the past 10 years is the extension of what began with these prior presidents, and Tony in particular, and that is the creating of opportunity for young people who would otherwise never have had uh, what Tony has called the privilege of the kind of education Amherst offers and the opportunities that open up by virtue of being a graduate of Amherst. I would have to say the extension of the demographic changes at the college this year's first year class is the first entering class that is truly a majority minority student class. It makes for an incredible place. There's a lot more work to be done. We want to make sure that Amherst is a place where everyone who comes here feels they can contribute to creating a culture and that they're not only a part of it, but one of the participants in continuing to create change while preserving the best of Amherst. I think the expansion of diversity among faculty is another very significant accomplishment uh, for the team. We have gone from having about 16 or 17 percent of the faculty be faculty of color to 27 percent. That makes a significant difference for the faculty, the students, and the staff. I would also add the climate action plan that we developed that's on target to help us achieve carbon neutrality by 2030. Then I would I would also say championing a student center, which Amherst has never had. It's never had a genuine crossroads or a point on campus where students also with staff and faculty can gather in larger numbers uh, with many different interests connected in a location where people actually do run into each other frequently by accident. Finally, I'd say the hiring of so many faculty, because of so many retirements, we've hired, 
I think 91 faculty at least over the past uh, eight years and probably more than that. And then more recently, the change in the makeup of the faculty and the, the quality of the faculty and the heterogeneity by field, by race, by ethnicity, by interest, by teaching style, this will be a huge source of growth for the, for the college going forward. Thanks, Biddy. Uh, so uh, Tony and Tom, bear, bearing in mind Biddy's uh, injunction about the fact that uh, you know, progress is a, is a collective effort, and I, I know it's not boilerplate, it's, it's the way things um, work and have to work and, and should work. Uh, bearing that in mind, though, um, what, what do you see as the, the signal accomplishments during the period when you were president? And, you know, Tom, let's start with you. Well, the accomplishments that I count, uh, and certainly, as Biddy says, they're, they're a team effort. Uh, when I came in, the board made it very clear to me uh, what I already knew from the less prestigious and less wealthy Trinity. And that was that on a number of metrics, Amherst seemed to be getting less uh, strong in wealth, endowment, and so on. We were spending at a higher level than we've spent since. And we were embarking on our one of our biggest capital campaigns, although Tony and Biddy have more than matched that. So I came in with a sense of a kind of frugal fiscal mandate uh, as a couple of years went on, though, I started to feel that we needed to change the way we did recruitment and admissions. And we, I recruited, it took a long time, almost a whole year. And Tom Parker came down from Williams, having been Dean of Admissions at Williams, he became Dean of Admission at Amherst. And I count that as a pivot uh, for me and I think for the college as a whole, because it really began the uh, more systematic frankly, uh, more data-driven uh, and more personalistic in going out and recruiting of a more diverse student body. Thanks, Tom. Tony, and what about during your period? The, the signal achievement was an, a, a community achievement, and that was a recognition that excellence and diversity were not zero-sum game, that they did not need to be traded off from. And in fact, the reverse was true, that being more diverse, we could be more excellent and be a more excellent educational experience for everyone, as well as the role that we play in the world. Leaving Biddy with uh, the challenge which she has met, which is adjusting a culture. You can't just change the inputs, you gotta, <laughs> it then means you have to be uh, understanding about how you, you, you adjust the culture while still maintaining the basic historic core model of education, which of course is second to none as far as as I'm concerned, what makes me smile is, you know, I, I'm on the streets or subways of New York and someone, uh, some young man or woman will say, oh, President Marks, which of course is the giveaway, right? <laughs> right away, I'm like, oh, Amherst. Um, and just meeting these folks who were at the college in Tom's time or in Biddy's time or in my time or in Peter's time. Uh, uh, and, uh, and just what amazing people have been created who are trying their best to figure out a path that makes them feel whole and valued and valuable 
in the world in a responsible way, it's really an amazing community. And that's, you know, that's what it's all about in the end. And doing that generation after generation. You know, each of you in different ways and sometimes in the same way have used the word culture. And I think anyone who sets foot on the campus is aware of a, a deep seated and saturating culture that has probably been different over time, but it's, it's a very real thing and it's palpable. It's always made me wonder whether, whether Amherst is different from other places that are kind of like it. And if it is, how different is it? Tom? It seemed to me that it was a hell of a lot more ready for an intellectual fight than anywhere I'd ever been. People want to argue about just about everything. I mean, there's just a passion for Socratic kind of rational argument, which isn't the whole of life. And as Biddy's emphasized, you know, there's a lot of emotion in all of this. And you've got to learn to surf that, to sort of ride those waves of argument, to, to be at all persuasive or successful there. And, and I, I got a kick out of that. And I think it's pretty unique. Tony? I think what makes Amherst stand out is how it minimizes its hypocrisy. Is struggling through a difficult process that Tom describes to live up to its rhetoric and not just have that be the rhetoric. I, the, the seriousness of the place, the most obvious indication of it is we're in higher education and we actually take education of our students seriously. Put more directly, what's true about Amherst is, yes, it has an amazing brand, and, but it doesn't, it isn't just about the brand. It isn't just about the image. Other institutions in the lead and their sectors do cut corners, do sort of focus on the brand rather than the substance. Every place does it to some extent. Amherst does it really less than most. And I think that's part of the secret sauce of the seriousness, the seriousness of the debate that happens around where we're going and the seriousness of what we produce in terms of the amazing students and alumni. Biddy? When I think about the culture of Amherst and what sets it apart, I can only agree with Tom and Tony. There is a seriousness of purpose, which accounts perhaps for what Tony has described as a lesser hypocrisy. I would only add that given the intellectual seriousness, given the desire at every juncture to do better, it is a very high quality place. Those things have an effect. One of the things that makes Amherst Amherst is the loyalty of our alumni and the quality of friendships that they forged while at Amherst and that they sustain throughout their lives. The fact that they forged those friendships that they sustain them, and that they then offer them to every new class of Amherst students accounts for the deep and lasting sense of community that everyone associated with Amherst gets to enjoy. You know, one of the things that happened to me in one of the first weeks I was on campus, I passed by two young men, obviously students, sitting on a bench outside of Val. I stopped and asked what they were talking about. 
And here's what they said. We're comparing infinite jest to James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I've arrived in heaven. Now, that is not what happens all the time or even much of the time. It gave me a false impression, I'm sure. But there's something to it. Colin, can I just tell one other anecdote? So this, this all does this sort of trying to live up to values. The story I'll tell is the day that Larry Summers gave his famous speech at Harvard, suggesting that women might not be capable of uh, being in the science center that Biddy is now <laughs> sitting in, having built. The um, I got the only fax I ever got from the then chairman of the board who hired me, Amos Hotstetter. I don't know why, but he chose that moment to fax me. And the fax basically just said, send me our numbers of women in sciences, faculty, students, alumni, period. And I just thought, oh yeah, this we're not game playing, we're not yelling, we're not pointing, we're like, oh, this is a serious issue. Unfortunately, it's been called in a not serious way. And we're going to respond to it seriously. And that's what we did. And, you know, that starts, you know, <laughs> starts at the very top with the board ready to make principled decisions rather than short-sighted, self-interested decisions or purely single stakeholder driven decisions. So we've had a lot of serious talk and used phrases like seriousness of purpose and so on. Um, we're college presidents. I know. I know you. you, you well, two of you were, were college were, presidents. Were, 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 sorry. Like, yeah, uh, let's get that straight. Right, right. Sorry. <laughs> a college president and you dredged up two old ones. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so we have time for just a couple of more questions. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask them both at the same time. The first has to do with just thinking about a moment at the college that you suspect you will take to your grave as a happy, fun moment, something that epitomizes um, your experience there in, in a most positive way. And the second thing is knowing that someone else is going to be occupying that wonderful office in Converse a year from now, what's the piece of advice that you would give to her or him? And Biddy, do you want to start with that? I'm thinking about what I'll take to the grave as a moment of uh, joy or, or pleasure. But I think one of those moments will be one of the seasonal festivals that we created. Let's take Fall Fest. The moment when I walk to Val Quad and I see not only zillions of students, but also faculty with children, staff with children, just having fun together, doing silly things. I think we talked a lot about Amherst's seriousness of purpose, which is all to the good and should, should certainly not recede. And Amherst can also use more fun, the, the forms of community that get built not just through intellectual exchange, but also enjoying one another's presence without high stakes involved. That would perhaps be one piece of advice if I were advising the next president, 
preserve what has made Amherst what it is, that intellectual seriousness, seriousness of purpose, determination to get things right, educational excellence, and also keep creating sources of fun and humor and community. Tony? In terms of great memories that I will, I mean, there are so many. One is the experience of raising my kids uh, on the Amherst campus. I loved everything about Amherst and seeing what it was doing for everyone, but they're my kids. And the just having kids be able to benefit from usually what you have to wait till 18 to be a part of was just unbelievable and such an amazing feeling of community and opportunity and excitement and look at what kids are capable of doing. What could be better than that? As for the next president, so sorry, I'll be a little bit heavy. What I would like to say to the next president is, look, we've all been through the most you know, intense 18 months historically. And what did we learn? We've learned that humans can be selfish and greedy and short-sighted and scared and distrustful. But we've also seen that people can be inspiring and inspired and caring and thoughtful like nobody's business, especially in hard times. Amherst College is a privileged place that brings together amazing kids and staff and faculty and alumni. We look to our successors to make sure that Amherst will continue to inspire, refine, enable, enact, the better angels of our students as they are students and as alumni, that we do that is how we teach not only in the classroom, but on the campus, in our governance, in our policies, in our institutional actions, and that we recognize that the power and privilege of Amherst, to borrow Kennedy's phrase, comes with a responsibility, that we have to do more, and, you know, sorry to say time, we've all, Amherst has always been a institution with a sort of endless time horizon and that's appropriate. It is a permanent institution and, and needs to be, but it feels like time is growing short in a way that I'm not sure I have felt. Maybe it's my own age. Maybe it's the times we live in, the challenges that we're facing, the intensity of those, the way in which society avoids coordination and solving those problems. We are in the business of creating the leaders that come to full fruition a decade, sometimes five decades after they leave Amherst. We need to be even more thoughtful about how we can proactively ensure the leadership that comes from Amherst for the future is ready for those harder challenges we have to be where the puck is going to be. And in education, that's not easy. None of it is easy. The good news is we've got all the ingredients to do as we have done. Amazingly, I just think the stakes are going up now. Mm -hmm. Tom? On advice to anybody in this kind of a job or to the president of Amherst, Clark Clifford compared JFK and LBJ. Remember, he worked for, people may not know, but this guy, Clark Clifford from Missouri, worked for seven or eight presidents. And he said, when LBJ 
confronted the Tonkin Gulf problem. LBJ's reaction was something like, why are those son of bitches coming after me? Or some, some other thing like that. Personal, insulted, angry. And he said when JFK in his rocking chair confronted a similar defiance or conundrum from Cuba, JFK leaned back and forth in his rocking chair and said, that's really interesting. And I would say to the president of Amherst, as somebody said to me when I was diagnosed with cancer while I was president of Amherst, let it be interesting. Be interested in what the other guys have to say. It's really probably the greatest intellectual virtue to be really curious about how they came to their differing view. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Wright, Amherst class of 1987, and this is Amherst at 200, celebrating mind, heart, and community. A production of Amherst College in association with Cadence 13, narrated by me, Jeffrey Wright. Executive produced by Biddy Martin, Ian Mont, and Rebecca Kennedy. Produced by Catherine Duke, Bette Schumacher, and Sandy Janelius. Written, directed, edited, and mastered by Ian Mont. Technical and equipment support by Sean Cherry. Creative consultation by Catherine Duke, Carly Nardowitz, Connolly Stokes-Buckles, and Molly Whalen. Music from Source Audio and Extreme Music. Special thanks to Cullen Murphy, Tom Garrity, and Tony Marks. Mm-hmm.